Thank you for listening to the podcasts from Life Central Church. For more information or to visit one of our locations, go to lifecentralchurch.org.uk. Why is there so much suffering? If God is real, why so much suffering? You know, I've never met anybody, whether they're a Christian or not, who hasn't had some kind of questions about life, about faith. You know, questions are how we learn. Teachers ask children in their classes questions. And kids ask their parents questions, don't they? I mean, just a few examples of some of those amazing questions that kids ask. Like one mum who tells of her five-year-old who once she was given an explanation about what a C-section is, the response from a child came, well, what's an A-section and a B-section? Do you know, kids have got it. I mean, we never, why is it called that? Or the dad, Joe, who said, my son asked me, what does Wi-Fi stand for? So I told him it's named after its inventor, William Filliam. I thought, quite like that one. Or the dad who recalled the time his daughter asked if sand was called sand because it was halfway between sea and land. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? But questions are how we learn. And the same is true in our discovery of God. I love what Amy Orr Ewing, who's a great contemporary theologian out of Oxford, says. And she says this, that questions and doubts are not dangers to be avoided or suppressed, but can be companions on a journey towards a relationship with God and a genuine exploration of faith. One of the characters, the less known characters in the Bible, who doesn't seem to worry too much about posing his questions to God, is the guy called Habakkuk. Not a name on your list when you're planning names for your children, is it? Let's be honest. But Habakkuk, in his very short little book, just three chapters, is actually posing very significant questions to God. Maybe questions that you and I have asked on occasions. Just look at these words from Habakkuk chapter 1, a couple of these verses here where he says this. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralysed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. And his conversations with God over the first couple of chapters are raw and honest. And I want to start by saying to you today that God can handle that. Our raw, our honest questions. Leon finished towards the end of what he was saying last week and said something you might have found surprising when he talked about having been away at Spring Harvest and remembering times he'd been away at big events and then drove away and thought, is there a God? And maybe none of us would like to admit that we've had such huge questions and doubts and I appreciated Leon's honesty in sharing that. But sometimes we find ourselves asking some really hard questions. And today's question is certainly one of those significant ones. And it's this question, isn't it? Why does suffering exist? 
Well, it would be easy to try to find all kinds of answers, but I want to focus in on a couple for you this morning before we move on. And John Lennox, who is a bioethicist and mathematician and one of the great thinkers of the Christian church today in the UK, suggests that evil exists because of two main reasons, what he calls natural evil and what he calls moral evil. Well, I've kind of changed the words a little bit, and I would suggest to you that evil exists primarily for two reasons, a broken creation and a sinful humanity. A broken creation. And we look back, and we will in a moment, into the book of Genesis, but actually, when the Apostle Paul writes a letter to Christians in Rome, in chapter 8, which is a marvellous chapter of hope and it's got some phenomenal words in it, he says this about creation, you'll find interesting, I hope. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. And it's those final words that are interesting, death and decay, because they summarise not just the metaphysical problem of the universe, but also the physical problem of the human nature. When we think about the world that we're living in and we think back to the beginning of time, we know the first couple of chapters in the Bible are this perfect environment, a perfect creation. No thorns, no un- nasty wild animals and God walking in the garden in the evening with Adam and Eve. I'd call that quite perfect, wouldn't you? But actually when we get to chapter 3, it goes wrong. Because of the rebellion that we'll talk about in a moment of those first humans, creation is corrupted. And not only is their nature corrupted, but the very essence of creature itself is damaged. Which means that everyone born will one day die. You know, the statistics about death are pretty accurate. Every one person will die. A hundred out of a hundred will die. A thousand out of a thousand will die. We know that from the moment we're born, we anticipate the fact that the Bible says it's appointed to man to die once. And that is our future. But everybody's body will grow and develop. Have you ever wondered, where is that tipping point? You know, we, when children are born, they grow and we encourage them to walk and they learn new skills and they develop and they build muscle and they grow. And there's a tipping point when you start to decay. I realised I hit that tipping point longer ago than I actually would like to imagine. And everything starts to go wrong and go downhill, doesn't it? And you're battling, actually the reality is we're battling against a natural decay that is part of a broken creation in which we live. Every plant, every tree, every creature has a limited time span. You might only be outlived by the big tree in your garden. But one day that will die and that will perish because creation is ultimately broken. And as a result, we find that natural laws are also a blessing, but they're a curse. That creation is subject to these cycles of life, of life, growth, decay and death. Life, growth, decay and death. In all creation, throughout time and history. 
And some of those things are good and some of them are bad. For example, when tectonic plates move, those plates on this surface of the earth, and any geologist here, brilliant geologists like Leon told us he is, any geologists will know that when tectonic plates shift, they release minerals. And those minerals from deep in the core of the earth are actually beneficial to the condition of our planet. But when civilization builds cities on tectonic plates, earthquakes happen that cause devastation. And we know there are parts, certainly of Southern California in the United States, which sit on tectonic plates and massive shifts take place. That's how a tsunami begins through tectonic plates moving. You think I'm really intelligent, don't you? I mean, you're impressed on. It's amazing what Google can do for you. Try it. But those shifts can create all kinds of damage as well. Cell production allows our body to grow and to develop, but sometimes when those cells misfire in the system, they create cancer and other kinds of diseases. And so we see that actually we are broken physical beings living in a broken creation. But we also have to reflect quickly on the misuse of our planet, don't we? The global warming due to industrialization is causing devastation and more significant natural disasters than history actually records. Planetary erosion is meaning that whole communities are beginning to disappear. And maybe living where we do in, in England, we might be some of the last if our, if our nation starts to disappear underwater, but there are whole communities, islands, even nations under threat today by the rising sea levels that we know about. And that's part of what we, that big human we, have done to the planet that God gave us. But not only is creation broken, that natural evil John Lennox talks about, but we are broken as a humanity. We are a sinful humanity. Again, if we go back into the book of Romans in chapter five, when Paul writes, he says these words, that when Adam sinned, Sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. The reality is that every one of us were born an imperfect being. Did you ever teach your kids to say no? Did you ever teach your kids to be naughty? I've not met many parents who say, today is your naughty lesson. <laughs> There's something within us, it's like the bowling ball that will never go straight, the crown green bowling ball. It's got a bias within it because each one of us lives every day with a broken humanity, a sinful humanity that we know our natural disposition is away from God and something has to change. And that's what happened with the first humanity. They made selfish decisions for themselves, Adam and Eve, and that selfishness had wider and wider and wider repercussions. So we live in a world today where one of the significant reasons for some people's suffering is the selfish choices of others. There's a human preoccupation with selfish ambition that leads to greed in our world today. And greed leads to all kinds of things. It's become the, the currency of our modern society. It leads to anger and violence and hatred and oppression, war and suffering of all kinds. Greed leads to human trafficking. Anger and violence leads to sexual exploitation of people. 
Today, the Ukrainian people's suffering is as a result of another nation's anger, hatred and greed. Today, when 10% of the world's population are in extreme poverty, it's because wealthy nations refuse to reduce the debt on those nations that they've held them in. That it was because hundreds of years ago, wealthier nations, even like our own, stripped those nations of natural resources. It was nations like ours not making a political statement that created the slave trade that caused the racism that we see still endemic in so many of our cultures and societies today. Because actually human selfishness, human greed is the seed of so much suffering. And I suppose it causes me to ask of myself, and if I can ask of you watching online in our sites here in Hauso, in this question, has our selfishness ever been the cause of someone else's suffering? Of course, we probably can't answer that question because the very essence of being selfish is that we're unaware that our needs, our wants, our desires, our way might actually have damaged somebody else. And we know this question of suffering is, is a huge one. And in trying to answer those questions, those big questions, we're still left, aren't we, with so many that time won't allow this morning for us to answer. But questions like, why do some people die so young? Why do some good people experience really awful things? And why do some bad people seem to prosper? And we find ourselves all the way back to Habakkuk, to the psalmist, who poses those questions because as long as time has existed, so has the reality of pain and suffering in every culture, every society. And we're not wanting to suggest today that we have all the answers to the pain and suffering in our world. But we do believe that God is real and God wants to connect with us in whatever we're experiencing that is suffering and pain. And for some people, what you describe as pain and suffering, they can't see the significance of. But if it's real for you, then it's obviously real. And I think that it leads to this really important question. And that is, what is God's response to suffering? If we've just somehow begun to understand some of the reasons for suffering, what is God's response? I want to say to you, from the moment it went wrong in that great garden of Eden, God committed to solve the problem. He committed himself to make sure that the root of human suffering will be dealt with. But of course, the problem becomes, how do you understand the root of the problem? What do you define at the root of the problem? And for God, a holy, righteous and just God, he understood that the root of suffering, the root of the problem, is the out-of-condition human soul. Many people ask questions like, if God's a God of love, why does he come and step in and intervene and change that situation? And I would simply suggest to you today, God's willing to change a situation, but he's far more concerned about changing me. Because situations come and go and repeat themselves. But the greatest way to change humanity is to change humanity. And that's why, again, in the book of Romans, you'll find this question is addressed in these words, that everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, in his grace, 
freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. If you're taking notes, if you're logging what I'm saying, please make a note of this. Because today I want to tell you that God's response to human suffering is Jesus Christ. That is God's response. It might not be the response that some of us have been looking for, but it is his greatest response to what we experience. And Jesus in the first instance comes as what we call the suffering servant. And that's really important to understand that when God sends Jesus, he comes in this way. We go 800 years before the time of Christ's arrival to the prophet Isaiah, who's speaking into a nation who's constantly walking before God, disobeying God. But he speaks prophetically generations ahead of the one that would come as God's response to suffering. And he says this about that one that would come in Isaiah 53. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. God entered our world and experienced our pain and suffering firsthand. He didn't stand remote in some transcendent place beyond the stars. He came to us. And Isaiah goes on in that famous passage to tell us he was pierced, he was crushed, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was oppressed, he was condemned, he was murdered and he was buried. We're just a few weeks out of Easter, but we must never forget the message of Easter, that God came into our world and suffered. Did you know that Jesus was a refugee as a baby, forced to flee with his family into Egypt to avoid the, the, the attack of Herod, the king, who wanted rid of anybody else who might be identified as a king. He experienced abandonment and homelessness and poverty a betrayal by his closest friends and false accusation and ultimately a humanly unjust death at the hands of his own government and the occupying Romans. And he experienced all of that because God himself wanted to come and associate with our human experience. And so we realise that God's first response to our suffering was to experience it himself. I wonder if we did that. We think about others in other parts of the world who are suffering, but there's not so many of us would be quick to jump on a plane and go and live their life and live their poverty and their disease and their suffering. But God came in the person of Jesus, his son, in that way. And that's the way he becomes the complete saviour, this next expression of God's response. And Jesus walks amongst people. He walks our life and as he's preparing his disciples for his eventual death, his resurrection, he says these words to them in John chapter 16. I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have trials and sorrows, 
but take heart because I have overcome the world. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God provides a way through human suffering. A light, if you like, at the end of life's tunnel. A hope beyond this life, beyond the grave. John Lennox, again, he, he says this, that God raised Jesus from the dead so that death is not the end. And this life does contain all kinds of struggles and troubles and challenges and pains and sorrows. But Jesus comes to tell us that there is a life to come that's beyond this small drop in the ocean of the life we live in. The Christian message is one of hope in the middle of what we're experiencing. We can't always separate ourselves from the pain and suffering of our world, but within it, we can find hope. And you see, I've read the end of the book. I haven't finished, half finished this story. I've read the end of the book and this is what the end of the book in Revelation chapter 21 says. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And that's the future of all who put their trust in Jesus. And this isn't kind of fluffy clouds and Carolyn Quentin eating Philadelphia cheese as the old commercials might show us. No heaven's more wonderful than that. You know, if God, let me go on a tangent here for a moment. If God created a world with so much colour and texture and taste and sound and sight, if the beauty of what we see in our world, the majesty of creation, the mountains and the lakes, and all the magnificence of what he did first time round, do you think the next one's going to be white fluffy clouds? It's going to be colours we've never seen and sounds we've never heard and textures we've never touched and tastes we've never tasted. Oh, but I do pray that Cadbury's will be in heaven. <laughs> because God's response to our suffering is to offer us a hope and a home beyond this life. But not just something that's beyond us. He is the good shepherd I love how Jesus observed the pain and suffering around him. And Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 9 when we read these words. Then Jesus made a circuit of all the towns and villages. He taught in their meeting places, reported kingdom news and healed their diseased bodies, healed their hurt and bruised and hurt lives. When he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. So confused and aimless they were, like sheep with no shepherd. God cares today. We may not get all the answers. Maybe only that eternal life will provide some answers. But I'm pretty certain when we get there, we won't have the questions anymore. And Jesus comes into our world to reveal God's love and compassion for those who are hurting he uses the image of a good shepherd who cares for those who are endangered by life struggles. Just like the psalmist who says in Psalm 23, you know it so well, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. 
Tim Keller, the great preacher and writer of our day, says that suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. See, God's response to our suffering is to offer us companionship and comfort every day of our lives. You might ask the question, if God knew that pain and suffering would be part of creating this world, would it not have been better to not create it in the first place? Well, if like me, you're a parent and enjoy being a parent, you made a choice like that. I remember the day that Amanda and I decided that we wanted to have a family. It was very early in our marriage relationship. We'd already talked about it before we got married and we decided we wanted our kids early and... um, We contemplated the fact that we were bringing them into a broken world. Like every parent, you wonder, is this the right thing to do? Because in bringing our children into this world, we knew that there was a world of pain and suffering they couldn't avoid engaging with. But like many of you, we decided that we wanted our children anyway and had a wonderful family and God blessed us. And we knew that that would cause pain and suffering for them at some point. You see, love didn't stop us having children. It was love that made the decision for us. The love that we could give, the love that we could receive. And we knew that whatever happened, if we loved, then we could endure anything together. It wasn't a lack of love that caused God to create the world we live in. It was love that inspired him. God is not a scientist trying to show off about what he can do. He's not throwing planets into spheres and doesn't create gravity so he can say, look how big I am. He wasn't a scientist creating an experiment in a laboratory. He was a father building a nursery for his children. I remember when our first child, Matthew, was, was, was on his way and Amanda and I, We lived in a church house in the church we were leading at the time down in High Wycombe and we decided to decorate the nursery and we got some embossed anaglypta paper. Yes, those were the days. It was embossed with a Humpty Dumpty and we were going to paint it, but me as a big old fool, I took a big black marker pen on the nicely plastered walls and wrote, a big heart, Stu loves Manda. And so then we pasted the paper on the wall only to find that it came through in red ink. It took about 643 coats of paint. To... And we put a board around, but no one used to put a board around the middle. And we had a little mobile over the cot to match. And we were excited. There was a rocking chair in the corner. Why? Because we were parents building a nursery for the one we would love. And when God created the world we live in, He was a father making a home for you, a place you could get to know Him. And when it went wrong, he was a father that said, I'm going to put this right. So he sent his son to die for me so that I could call him dad and spend not just this life, but the life to come with him, exploring and enjoying the wonder of who he is. Just a moment, Dan and the team are going to lead us in a song called the goodness of God and I couldn't help but be compelled by the second verse which simply says I love your voice you have led me through the fire 
And in darkest night, you were close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. And I have lived in the goodness of God. I wonder whether you'd just join me in a moment of prayer together. Right in our venues, if you're watching online in your home, wherever you might be, we're pausing for a moment to ask the Father to help us. I'm so aware that there are people I can't begin to imagine what your current pain and suffering might look like and experience might be. I know for some of you, it feels intolerable. I want to tell you today, you have a Father that loves you. A saviour who came to be your shepherd and guide you. And I want to say, Father, today, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, you didn't stand aloof from our suffering and our pain. But you came to us in the person of Jesus. And you came and you found us even though we were lost. And you've offered us comfort and strength and hope and the presence every day of your Holy Spirit. So that whatever we're experiencing, whatever we're going through, we don't have to do that alone. We can have a constant companion. And I pray if there's people here in the room, in our locations, watching online, Father, who've never yet said, Lord Jesus, come and be my good shepherd, be my complete saviour that they would today simply turn to you and ask you to come and to bring hope beyond whatever life is throwing in their direction today. And Father, this is our deepest desire and we pray it today in the name of Jesus. Amen.